start. Hey. Uh, I played the intro this time, which I, I didn't know that Ben wanted before, but I always had the power to do so. He was like, how, how can we, can Gene make the introduction happen? And, and it's it's always been within my power. <laughs> I've, I've, I've always had the free will to, to do that. Oh, um, man. So it's your fault that we never had it. Yeah, and it was my responsibility, um, and so on and so on. You know, Ludwig Wittgenstein, I don't know if you know this anecdote, but it's a, it's a, a fun one. Um, Ludwig Wittgenstein really wanted to move to the Soviet Union in the 1930s. Um, him him and his, 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 his boyfriend, his partner, his whatever you want to call him, his, his long-term lover, uh, very much wanted to move to the Soviet Union, and they did travel to the Soviet Union in the 1930s. Um, but unfortunately for Wittgenstein, what Wittgenstein wanted was to go to the Soviet Union to be proletarianized. He wanted to become uh, like a, a line worker, an agricultural worker, whatever. But unfortunately, um, the Soviets, who, who loved high culture and, and loved philosophy and, and so on, refused and would only make him a, a university professor. <laughs> uh, so this experience, he he returned to England, but um, Wittgenstein was until about I mean they died about the same time was a, a, a lifelong defender of of Stalin, um, which he would occasionally do to kind of <laughs> the the horror of um, some of his Oxford contemporaries, uh, especially I was, I was reading um, his biography by the the guy Monk, and when he you know, gets to talking about Stalin and Wittgenstein and Stalin, it's a one bit where he kind of has to inject some moralism into the book to say like, oh, isn't it so terrible that he could say these nice things about Stalin? Isn't it so terrible? Um, but that, that said, we're, we're talking this week about whether analytic philosophy is counter-revolutionary, counter-anti-communist. Um, and where, where can people find such a lovely essay, Ben? All right. They can find it at benburgess.substack.com. The, that's the philosophy for the people. Substack, uh, new essays go up uh, every uh, every Sunday, either early or late morning, depending on which coast of the United States you are at or some, you know, some other time if you're in one of the other less important parts of the world. Places with less analytic philosophers. <laughs> well, depended, right? Uh, you know, I, th I think you're you're in a place that you know might have more analytic philosophers per capita uh, than uh, than the United States, at least, if not in absolute terms. So, Ben, what 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 is an analytic philosopher, and why yeah. might they be bad? Like, what was what's the thesis of this article? This is an article. Well, your article is a, is a reaction, is a reply to an article in in Jacobin. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the so what an analytic philosopher is is a surprisingly difficult question to a answer in any kind of precise way, which is a source of frustration to analytic philosophers because they like answering questions in precise ways. Uh, but uh, and and it's very hard to do it when they're describing the the thing well, that they, they are. They also don't have very many precise answers to what philosophy is. That's People true. ask that a lot on Reddit, and and it's it's never one where there's a particularly clear answer. Yeah, no, I actually oftentimes uh, when, when I would teach uh, intro to philosophy classes um, in, in person, you know, one of the uh, 
things I do on the first day is say, okay, you all signed up for this class. Uh, what, do you, what, what is it about? Right. I mean, like, like you must have some idea, right? Like, uh, what, you know, somebody tell me what philosophy is and they'll give you definitions that would actually be, I don't know, like they sound more like psychology or anthropology or something, you know, that you're studying how people think or, you know, uh, their ideas are. And, uh, and, you know, eventually, though I don't, I don't swoop in with, you know, I mean, I'll say a couple things, but like a, a great answer, but instead say, okay, let's, let's go at this from a different way and start talking about the kinds of things that you're doing when you do philosophy. Can somebody give me an example of that? And then we kind of go from there. But, um, and, you know, and like say some stuff about how philosophy is different from science and, you know, different from literature and whatever, but that's, none of that is exactly a precise uh, definition. And then within philosophy, defining what analytic philosophy is, is also very difficult. So something that I talked about, actually not in this essay, but like a, a few ago, the one in Zizek, is that uh, the contrast term to continental philosophy is supposed to be, uh, is to analytic philosophy is supposed to be continental philosophy. And there's something very confusing about that contrast because one of them, analytics sounds like, sounds like the name of a methodology and um, continental is is a word that you know names a particular region of actual physical space the uh the european continent uh and then it's even more confusing when you realize they, they should have called them anglophone and vibes based <laughs> yeah there you go there you go yeah uh and um except that even the anglophone thing is confusing because because so much of the uh, so much of the earliest analytic philosophy what we now think of as analytic philosophy is um, was was done in German right? that the uh, that um, people like uh, Frege people like well Wittgenstein is a complicated case because he went to study in in the UK and um, and you know uh, lived there for quite a while after but. Uh, mm-hmm. Tractatus was wrote in the trenches and in the wrong trenches. Yeah, exactly. The Tractatus, uh, Wittgenstein's, you know, kind of early Wittgenstein's masterpiece, was written in the uh, in, in the trenches, trenches on the German side of the uh, of World War One. Uh, although I believe Wittgenstein was such a weirdo that he uh, that he that uh, that he actually disapproved of Bertrand Russell being opposed to British involvement in World War One, even though what Russell was opposing yeah, yeah. the people who are trying to kill Wittgenstein. Right. But like, I think for in his mind, it's like sort of spiritually not good to, you know, be against your, your country or something like that. Uh, but, uh, but yeah. Um, so yeah, Wittgenstein, uh, Gottlob Frege, uh, the, everybody as would be suggested in the name in the Vienna circle, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. Uh, like these people uh, were all on the continent. So, uh, and then it's true. They, uh, they, you know, decamped to the UK or the U S or sometimes the UK, then the U S uh, Brian lighter, I think had a lot. I remember for many years ago on his blog about how the two people who did the most to improve the academic quality of philosophy departments, in the United States were Adolf Hitler and Margaret Thatcher. Um, Right, you know, because Hitler, Hitler. That when we say they left the continent, um, yeah. they didn't do it because Oxford is so amazing, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, exactly, because so many of them were Jews or socialists or both, right? Uh, and um, and so they, yes, they left in a hurry, 
uh and uh and then you know then the the thatcher part is just like budget cuts and stuff you know <laughs> leading people to be more likely to, to seek out jobs in the u.s uh but um but yeah so okay so we haven't actually said anything remotely informative about what analytic philosophy is yet so let's just real quick try to do that uh so um Analytic philosophy, roughly speaking, is it's a it's a vague term. It's an imprecise term, but it's a way of gesturing at a certain kind of style of doing philosophy, a certain tradition of doing philosophy. That um, if you know, if you uh, like the sort of people that you tend to be more likely to reference are people like a bunch of the names we just mentioned, rather than like Heidegger or Derrida, uh, you know, then then you know, uh, you know, you just might be uh, a uh, an analytic philosopher, and you know, roughly speaking, I think a lot of the impulse that grounds a lot of the things that would later become known as analytic philosophy is just like, hey, we really like uh, we really like the sciences, we really like math, we really don't like the kind of philosophy that sounds like convoluted bullshit, um, the which like. You know, I already mentioned Heidegger. I think that you know Heidegger putting out being in time, kind of around the time that this this distinction is really starting to get going. Uh, you know, definitely helps sort of solidify the sense that there are two different kind of uh, modes of uh, of doing philosophy. But also, I think a lot of what some of these guys like Bertrand Russell or G. Moore uh, or the Vienna Circle guys were reacting to was uh, like sort of you know, like late 19th, early 20th century, like British neo-Hegelianism and stuff like that, which was, which fairly or unfairly, right, they tended to perceive as kind of sounding like convoluted bullshit and uh, not to have clear standards of evidence and things like that. And so the thought was, how can we make, how can we do philosophy in a way that's uh, clear and where the arguments are more rigorous? And, you know, I think, there's a lot of more detailed stuff you could say, but I think that's like the sort of impulse, right? That, that animates a lot of, you know, a lot of analytic philosophy. And, and there's a sort of weird thing, I think, where a lot of people who are sort of uh, not necessarily academics, although some academics do think like this, but, you know, I think fewer, right? But like people who are just kind of philosophy fans sort of think that it's like a team sport and, you know, and you're, you're either on like team analytic or team continental, and I right. mean, for me, it definitely seems like these divisions have, have broken down a lot. Definitely. Um, kind of, but that doesn't seem to be the thesis in the Jacobin article. Yeah. Okay, good. So, um, yeah, I absolutely, um, you know, I think that I think the division is like less clear than ever uh, in, uh, in 2023 because, you know, you can find people, you know, again, roughly philosophy departments where that sort of come out of a certain kind of trajectory or tradition and where people have, uh, where people do, uh, you know, where uh, people tend to emphasize some of the virtues that I just mentioned, right, more than like certain kinds of competing virtues that you might emphasize, like that, yeah, look, there are people who we would describe as, you know, are part of what we're gesturing at when we use this vague phrase, analytic philosophy, 
who like you know who like do philosophy of mind and like love heidegger because they think that there are like you know interested insights in heidegger that you can mine to like you know figure stuff out about philosophy of mind and they'll sort of do this kind of elaborate translation of like here's the here's the sort of clear way of saying what he's saying uh there are uh there are you know, analytical, you know, Hegelians these days, you know, that there's, there's, uh, I, I provide links to a few people like that in there. Um, and, you know, conversely, I mean, that's, uh, you know, I, I was just looking at, you know, this is, I think going to be the subject of not next week, I think, but in near future, uh, philosophy for the people essay, um, you know, somebody was pointing me to, after the one I did about compatibilism last week, somebody was pointing me to, to Slavoj Žižek talking about compatibilism in his book, Less Than Nothing. You know, it's like, so it's like, okay, you have the most continental philosopher ever. Uh, <laughs> did you see, did you see um, Žižek talking about freedom in sublation? Oh, I actually haven't seen this, no. Yeah, I mean, I, I read it and I didn't really get it, but to oh, what yeah. I could see, it was kind of a, it was a very Doug, Doug Lane kind of like, well, libertarianism doesn't really make sense, but if we don't have it, then we don't have freedom. So we just have to kind of make a leap of faith. Well, it's, I will uh, say it was called a, a Pascalian wager of human freedom. Oh, I vaguely remember this now. Yeah. Um, I think I might've actually, I don't, I don't know if I played any role in this period simulation or not, but I actually remember, uh, I actually remember hanging out with him at, Hey, and he was asking about what Doug was up to post post zero mm-hmm. books. And I was like, Oh, I'm sure they've got this magazine. Yeah, I'm sure they'd love it if you wrote something for them. And then I saw like the next day or something, that thing was there. So I don't know if that's a coincidence or if he was just like that that, that article was um the first article I saw in Sublation, which someone asked a question about and also asked philosophy. But yeah. I didn't answer it because I didn't really get the article. Okay. Um, so I, I don't I don't know if he was just like, yeah, I've got this thing that's sitting here. Let's let's uh let's give it to Sublation. But um we're, we're describing quite kind of like a vague division between groups of academics who uh, it, it all seems very abstract. No, but it the is of the article we read in Jacobin is saying something very much different, which imagines philosophy is quite a strong, solid thing, and one which is kind of deeply implicated in bad stuff happening in America. In, no, in exactly. The so yeah, they so the article uh, the uh, Christoph uh, Sharinga, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly uh, in uh, in Jacobin uh, is uh, it's called uh, the birth of analytic philosophy out of the spirit of McCarthyism, uh, which which gives you some idea of uh, of, of what's uh, what's in the tin uh, and uh, and. And I, I think that Schrenger, as far as I could tell, I've read this article a couple times, is really arguing a couple things, although he sees them as related. Um, and this is kind of what I'm, the, you know, the, you know, one is a claim that analytic philosophy is this much more of a well-defined thing than we've been saying, and in particular that it's. Um, that it's like a very, uh, very constrained and intellectually narrow thing. Um, and so that's like the sort of uh, philosophical critique, right? That, that he says it's uh, that, you know, he thinks that there's this sort of story of like uh, increasing kind of philosophical conformity uh, that, you know, that he, he tells in sort of bits and pieces over the course of, of the article. And then, 
the second claim, which is the one that I'm kind of, you know, like that I'm obvious, more obviously taking aim at with the kind of half joking title of, of my essay is that uh, he thinks that analytic philosophy is, is very strongly tied to, um, to like, um, you know, I, I, I said in the, the, the deck at the top of mine, you know, anti-communist liberalism, but like, I think we could, we could just sort of more broadly say like, what I mean by that is not just like, you know, not liking Stalin, although even that, as you point out with Wittgenstein, is not is not universally the case. But uh, you know, like thinking that the you know the Soviet Union, you know, is not like the most desirable model of what a post-capitalist society could look like, uh, but like something more. Because if that's all it is, then sure, fair enough, right? You know, I, I'm not. I mean, this, this is similar to what you bumped up against in the Zizek thing, where. <laughs> You know, in in the article, he was like, you know, and then you pose Yugoslavia, and you're like, well, uh, yeah, I mean, what? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It doesn't right. necessarily uh, make you a liberal. Yeah, but the the more sort of interesting claim is that it's it's tied, um, even though I don't think either of them would be true. But I mean, like the uh, but like the first would be like false, but also I don't really care because uh, like you know I, I I do you know I think Stalinism is bad, but like the second is more interestingly false, which is that it's tied to like uh, liberalism in the sense of like uh, anti-radicalism, right? That the uh, sort of defense of the status quo, uh, thinking that you should, uh, you know, having a bunch of, you know, ideas that are like liberal in the sense that we all mean when we use the word liberal as a, as a term of contempt. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, that's like incompatible with like Marxist ideas. And, um, and so, one, basically, I almost completely don't think that any of this is true. Um, I like, I'm very unconvinced by the narrative in this in this article. Um, you know, and since people, I think, often get very confused about this point when I say that I think almost none of this is true. I'm not saying that I don't think that there are like any analytic philosophers who fit the bill, right. Of, of what's being described. Cause in some ways, sure. Right. Um, but that I, I think as a sort of broad characterization of everything going on in this, uh, kind of philosophy, I don't really think almost any of this is true. The reason I'd say almost is, is that I, I do think, I mean, I, I kind of at pains to acknowledge early in the essay. I think there is a, an element of truth to one, one part of what he's saying, right. Which is, which is just this that so so these Vienna Circle guys um, who uh, were these important early figures in again what I'll I know I've used this phrase like five or six times but I'll just use it one more time right you know just to be careful you know what would what would later be known as uh, analytic philosophy um, have a lot of them were were socialists. And so the example, in fact, like the example that's really striking to me that I give in the article is that, um, uh, is, is that Otto Neurath, uh, who's, uh, who, who was a member of the Vienna circle, uh, and who's somebody whose name I surely saw mentioned at least 10,000 times over the years. That I was in graduate school the years after, that I was kind of around academic philosophers always mentioned kind of in the connection to his views about uh, epistemology, right? So 
you know, philosophical theories of knowledge and, you know, and philosophy of science and stuff like that. Uh, I had no idea until like a couple of years ago when I read Lee Phillips and Mikhail Rzorsky's book, uh, People Republic, People's Republic of Walmart. And I was really shocked by this when I, when I learned, because it's like, oh my God, how did I not know this? That the guy uh, was uh, an extremely like active and important like socialist theoretician as as well as all this that the uh, that he uh, he was a um, uh, so there's something called the socialist calculation debate which I touch on just a little bit of the essay which is roughly this um, early 20th century but like sort of a lot of this was happening like the 1920s uh, debate that happened uh, basically between uh, socialists many of whom were like analytic philosophy kinds of socialists and uh and then like libertarian or proto-libertarian kinds of economists on the other side about whether there's a way that a um a non-capitalist or particularly like a centrally planned uh economy could uh efficiently coordinate production uh with uh, with consumer preferences and which is what the yeah, like basically how do you compensate for getting rid of the amazingly kind of powerful price mechanism yeah exactly right if you don't have if you don't have uh what they call price signals right so so like uh basically how much consumers are willing to pay for something uh is is a very efficient way of of, of signaling to producers you know how how uh how much they want it or not right and if you don't have that then is the sort of you're sort of depriving like the the worry is that like socialist planners will lack this knowledge that's important for for coordinating uh the uh the different parts of the economic machine and so there's this big complicated debate that happens over this about this in the uh, early 20th century and Otto Neuroth was like a major figure in that debate in fact not only that but I mean, like it gets a step more interesting than that, uh, that he was, uh, he wasn't just like theorizing about this shit. He was actually, he was actually a state economic planner in the, in the brief lived Bavarian Soviet Republic that like came into existence during the German revolution, uh, at the end of world war one, uh, which, which is like just, just astonishing. But it's, it's like, uh, it's like, I don't know. It's, it's if, if I, uh, it'd be like finding out that like, you know, that like Quine, you know, was was a member of the Black Panther Party or something. You know, it's like it's like wait, wait, really, right? How, how did I not know that, right? Uh, and, uh, um, you know, or, I don't know. Maybe uh, you know, maybe he was he was who was too pale to actually. I don't know if you saw, but someone said earlier in the chat that Quine was one of the the twentieth century's worst monsters. Uh yeah, I think that's. I think um, that's a bit of an overstatement. I think that, I, I don't really know much about Queen Quine. Uh, um, yeah, Quine, Quine. Yeah, uh, so Quine is a uh, is an important. Uh, well, I guess mostly late twentieth century. Although one of his important early essays is called "On What There Is," is from nineteen forty eight. Uh, but you know, mid mid and late twentieth century uh, analytic philosopher. I touch on him just a little bit in the essay. Uh, he, um, uh, it's actually kind of funny cause he, he writes very dryly or wrote, you know, very dryly and never about politics. So it's like kind of funny how, how strong, like, I'm sure the person that comments is joking or whatever, but it's like yeah, yeah. how strong the opinions, the guy, 
uh, kind of inspires are, which which is which is funny. Like I remember being a grad student, having very intense feelings about Quine, and now that I think about it, it's like I, I don't know. This guy just doesn't seem that like. It's like you know. It's like yeah. He's I, I really hated on on Putman when I was an undergraduate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Exactly. Same kind of thing. So, uh, but look, yeah. I mean, Quine is an interesting example, actually, because I think he was. Uh, I think Quiet actually probably did have uh, fairly right wing views, but he was just super quiet about them. Like, like everything that's like all the all the Quine stuff people have opinions about is like what he said about like philosophy of mathematics. Right. Like, you know, he, he he in the article he says, you know, um, it was kind of a great failure of, of analytic philosophy that they didn't produce a lot of um, political philosophy in, in the nineteen forties and fifties. Blah blah blah. But maybe it was for the best. Really <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. scared, right wing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Like it, it'd be very difficult in the 1950s in the United States to to produce political philosophy that you know you'd be proud of later. Uh, yeah, no, well, for I, sure. I was going to say like the, the strongest thesis. I, I think it's much weaker than what he's suggesting. The strongest thesis I could get out of the article that seemed plausible to me was a lot of important stuff happens in analytic philosophy in the U.S. at the same time McCarthyism was happening in the U.S. And that will have had like a certain effect on basically kind of like how the foundations, well, not the foundations, but kind of the middle period, the yeah. later, <laughs> late, later bit of the beginning um, of, of analytic philosophy and how it formed and kind of how it ended up. But I think it really struggles to bring that as if we kind of haven't recovered or we're still kind of like as if that happened and everything was kind of frozen and locked in place. And then it, nothing was ever changed, which just seems really impossible to me. Yeah, right. So this is kind of what I was starting to say about Neurath, because the thing that I think is plausible about Scheringa's article is that um, certainly in the U.S., which is actually a really important caveat, because, you know, like, I I think in, uh, in one of the more irritable lines in the essay. I, I say that it turns out that there are other countries in the world besides uh, Austria and the United States. Uh, but uh, certainly in the US, uh, the McCarthy period does put a chill on like radical leftism in academia. I mean, this is just undeniably true. Um, you know, this is like something Richard Wolff talks about all the time with economics, you know, that like, it's, it's, it's not that like, you know, I mean, it's... <sighs> Whatever, whatever you think about the intellectual merits of different kinds of marks in economics or whatever, it's not like economics departments, you know, just like, it's just like they had a bunch of Marxists, but they all just kind of like organically saw the error of their ways and they became something else. And that's why you don't have any, right? You know, like uh, there, there, there was like, you know, some of this stuff is the long-term, you know, after effects of of an era in which in which radicals were purged from academia in general and so in particular uh the point of the neurath example is that like yeah look if um if you're one of these people like neurath you know cardap right cardap is is a is a good example of a super important uh early analytic philosopher who who was a very outspoken socialist in the vienna circle period and then like you know by the fifties, he'd shut up about it, which is like very unsurprising. Uh, and, um, you know, 
sensible, right? <laughs> like uh, under the circumstances that uh, even if like some of these guys like, you know, fled to the United States because, you know, uh, the United States during, you know, in like the early 1940s was a vastly more hospitable environment for them than Vienna was, you know, you might like, get an uncomfortable interview or two with the FBI, but if it went badly, they still want to take you out, out into the back alley and shoot you. Uh, but, um, but especially after the end of world war one, the sort of breakup of the, the, uh, you know, popular front against fascism period at the beginning of the cold war and McCarthyism, uh, you know, it, it still got a lot less hospitable for people, you know, academics with radical political opinions. And so a lot of these people just kind of, you know, shut up and put their heads down. And it's like, look, I'm just going to talk about, you know, look, I, all I'm going to do is talk about symbolic logic, right? You know, like, 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 like I don't, I don't want any trouble. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, and like, and sure, some of the, and as they got older, some of them, you know, never went back to it, right? They, they never, they never started talking about politics again. And, and so in some cases you could have Otto Neurath actually be like run an economic planning office in the Bavarian Soviet Republic and have that be largely disappeared from the sort of casual collective philosophical memory of the man. Uh, and, and so, you know, that there is a sense in which I think that it is is right, that there's a, a, um, that like, there are ways in which, you know, uh, like the culture of academic philosophy in the United States, I think has been, you know, has like reflected the sort of long-term effects of that purge, you know, that, uh, that certainly would, you know, I, I talk about in the article, I mean, what I was going to. Uh, you know, when I was going to graduate school, everybody but like me and my two weird friends were, you know, were, were like either totally apolitical or just normal ass Democrats. Uh, I mean, like, you know, every once in a while you'd run into like a libertarian. They were their own sort of equal and opposite kind of eccentric, right? But like uh nobody, you know, it's it was it was pretty it was pretty rare, right? I mean, like like my experience in like two thousand and nine, if I told somebody I was a Marxist, would be that, you know, that was kind of like a charming and amusing eccentricity. Uh, that like nobody took it very seriously. Uh, so so outside of a a few departments, I think the important thing to note is that that would be true basically across the university. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like that, that's a, um, I don't, this is where I I get off board with Sheringa because I don't think this is a unique analytic philosophy problem. I think that this is, I think this is just generally true. Look, academia in my experience is you know, like conservatives are also rare, right? That's, that's, uh, that's, that's true. But like, um, but like in my experience, it's overwhelmingly dominated by just like regular mainstream liberals. Like the, the, those are, you know, people like people who like listen to NPR and, you know, vote for Democrats and, you know, like, like just don't have any remarkable political opinions of any kind. Um, and, uh, and so I think that, uh, where I get off, you know, where I really get off board with, with Sharinga's thesis is, is basically uh, a couple things, right? One of which has already been mentioned, which is uh, that the, there are other countries. And uh, in particular, there's the other country that you live in. And I would point out as far as that goes, uh, that um, like there's a really, there are a couple of really weird omissions in this article one of whom, and this is somebody in the chat, I saw you displayed their their message, like pointed this out a few minutes ago, but one of the 
biggest and most striking omissions is Bertrand Russell that like, this is the guy who's like, this is Mr. Analytic philosophy. I mean, if you were going to pick one figure in, um, to, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, if you were going to pick one figure to, uh, to sort of say like, look, who's the most sort of important person in the development of this kind of philosophy, it's gotta be him. And, um, and this is and this is somebody who is you know I mean I think that probably in various ways you know some of the audience here would find him you know too squishy and Menshevik and pacifist and whatnot but like you know but was certainly an outspoken radical. This is a guy who who what uh, if um, one of the first things that he he wrote actually was about the you know German Social Democratic Party you know and this is back when Lenin liked them too you know and uh, and, he, and he's praising them he uh, he's um, I mean, he did he, I mean he didn't really like it very much but he did go and see Lenin yeah 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 he did uh, and uh, you know he's yeah I mean he had a like you know he he didn't end up being a fan you know at all right of the uh, of the Soviet Union although crucially he also didn't become. I mean, other than like maybe for like five minutes of like sort of, um, you know, Orwellian terror of, 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 you know, like some vision of what the world could be in the late 40s, right? Like after he came to his senses, right? He had a, uh, he also wasn't on the US side of the Cold War. He was. Um, yeah, I was, was going to say that he wasn't in Orwell. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, right? I mean, I think, I think that the, I think that like, yeah, I, like I said, I think there may have been a minute in the '40s where he he kind of was a little bit of an Orwell, but I think that for the most part, right? If you look at it, at, at, you know, before that and certainly after that, uh, he was absolutely not an Orwell about it. He was a, uh, uh, like, uh, he's somebody who, you know, extensively wrote about, you know, socialism, pacifism, uh, you know, free love. Uh, the uh, he was he was denied a appoint, attempt to appoint him. It was like a big free speech case in the U.S. The City College of New York tried to appoint him for like a one year job to teach like you know symbolic logic and philosophy of mathematics, and it was denied because like the local archbishop was like furiously like agitated against it because you know because of his like advocacy of atheism and sexual immorality. Uh, he what is the last. And like, really, like the guy did, um, you know, I mean, he wasn't even just like an academic who just talked about this stuff. He was always like marching in protests. He was, uh, um, you know, he was, uh, I mean, he wasn't like even like Rawls who comes up later in the essay who like, I think, you know, like, look, Rawls just wanted to sit in the study and think about justice, right? He didn't want to actually, you know, do anything about it, right? Like, like he was kind of allergic to to controversies and even signing petitions and stuff. But like Russell, one of the last things that Russell did at the end of his life, I mean, he died in like 1970, I think, like, you know, was was uh, set up with Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, the um, this uh, this public uh, tribunal to uh, to investigate uh, U.S. war crimes. In, in Vietnam, you know, and, and so it, it just it just seems to me that like this is this is just a giant counterexample to this idea that like as analytic philosophy was really coming into its own as a distinct thing, you know, like all the people who were involved with it, you know, like dropped any radical opinions they may have ever had. Um, a, a real baffling age fact is that Chomsky was forty two when Bertrand Russell died. <laughs> Yeah, 
Yeah, there we go. Uh, you know, the thing I always find interesting, and, and it's and by the way, I mean, I, I have uh, if people want to look up after you're done with this on uh, on YouTube, uh, uh, Noam Chomsky and Bertrand Russell, you can find a, a good video of of, of Chomsky, you know, just like going on and on about why Russell is his hero. I think it's because somebody asked him why he had like a portrait of Bertrand Russell in his office. And uh, the first time I was ever on the Michael Brooks show, uh, not the first time in studio, but I was on for like one of those like Sunday things for they did for patrons. Uh, uh, the uh, you know we played that that clip uh, in there, Chomsky talking about Russell. But yeah, the thing it is amazing how old Chomsky is, and the fact that he's he's still um, he's still he's still at it, right? I mean, like like it, and he, he did. There's this like real quick transition to where it feels to me like up until about three years ago, Noam Chomsky stayed the same age for like 60 or 70 years. Like, like he, then he grew a scary beard. Yeah. Like he, you know, cause like, yeah, like I feel like, you know, 1983, 1993, 2003 Chomsky, you know, he looked old, but like, you know, not that old. Like he was sort of pretty in stasis, right? He looked like he was about the same age. And then, yeah, around 2019, 2020, like he had a, like suddenly he looked like he'd aged like an extra 20 or 30 years. Like he had a, like, like the way, like bearded Chomsky. I remember the first time I saw that, I was like, that man looks like he looks like a wizard who just escaped from a dungeon. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I bring up Chomsky to say that Chomsky, I mean, obviously he has a lot of haters on the left, but, you know, he is a leftist and socialist and so on. Yeah, but he's also one of probably the biggest toxic hater of continental philosophy out there. If there's a single a single place where you can get kind of the, the main source of, of people saying, "Well, I feel continental philosophy is nonsense." Yeah, their kind of appeal to authority here is is Chomsky saying this, and and Chomsky has claimed that kind of. Derrida and Foucault, it's just all nonsense, or if it's not nonsense, it's kind of, it's either nonsense or nothing interesting. Yeah. Um, which, is, which is to say that, you know, it, it seems difficult to fit Chomsky, who, as well as Bertrand Russell, into the thesis because he is definitely a leftist and definitely analytic in that he fucking hates continental philosophy, but is America's biggest leftist intellectual totally yeah and he's somebody who i mean just to reinforce what you're saying i mean like he has he has written not just about you know linguistics which is of course his primary field but also like you know philosophy of language uh and in a super analytic way and yeah i mean actually i mean it's, it's funny because like what you're describing despite the fact that i just wrote this essay that's like defending the honor of you know analytic philosophy um like what you're describing is probably my single biggest disagreement with uh, with with Noam Chomsky. You know that, uh, uh, like, because because you know there, I you know, I mean, there are political things where it's like I think he's making you know he either present tense is or past tense has made a mistake about this that or the other thing. But I think it's all kind of like it's always kind of like okay, you can sort of reconstruct the reasoning process and see how it got there. You know, but like like this just seems that always just seems kind of lazy to me here. It's like, it's like really bad. Yeah. I was like, going to say that it, it, it's very intellectually lazy, right? That to not to say your opposition is bad, but that they're speaking nonsense. Yeah, no, exactly. And it, like, it's very kind of toxic in the sense of it gives an excuse 
for everyone that isn't Noam Chomsky to then not read these people, which allows kind of the myth that he put aloud to, to further propagate. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree with that. Uh, I think that you, um, you know, and I think it's, I actually think what if, you know, what are the ideas I have for something that'd be fun, you know, down the line and, and uh, on the sub stack would be something that's uh, saying some would be like an essay uh, going back and talking about the Chomsky Foucault debate and, and, you know, and being like, okay, um, you know, not that it'd be like super polemically, you know, anti, you know, uh, anti uh, Chomsky because both, because I actually think he's largely right in what he's arguing in that debate. And also because I, you know, I fucking revere St. Gnome. Uh, but, uh, but also, but uh, despite that, right. Like, like just one of the points I'd like to make is like, okay, man, it sure seems like they both understand what the other person is saying and are making arguments against it. Doesn't it? Yeah. You know, so so it's like really like you know, Foucault, Foucault just like spouting nonsense. Was this like the one? Was this the one break he took from nonsense to like come up with some some like actual opinions to express? Uh, you know, like is there no link between what he said here and you know what he says in his books? Uh, but anyway, all which is a side point. It's like yes, I think Bertrand Russell's a giant hole in this argument. Uh, another giant hole in the argument is um, uh, is Gia Cohen. Uh, who obviously we've talked about before. I've written a bunch about for Jacobin as well as a previous uh, Substack essay about him. Uh, but like, uh, I, I just find it really remarkable. In fact, one of the funny, I, I don't quite spell this part out of the essay, but like one of the funny things about all this is, co- is um, this is really interesting tension, I think, in Stringer's article, because on the one hand, you know, he's, I think, being intellectually honest enough to acknowledge it's like, okay, some of what I'm saying doesn't really apply to the Vienna Circle, at least. Like I said, I, I wish he would also acknowledge better about Russell, and then we could really, you know, Chomsky, right? You know, but like, um, you know, so so he's honest enough to acknowledge doesn't really apply to the Vienna Circle. So it's like, okay, well, maybe they were okay, right, before, before they came to America. And uh, then, and then it, then uh, they became, and then at which point they became not okay because they founded this thing I don't like analytic philosophy, you know, as uh, as we now know it. But like, um, but it's funny because also like in the opening paragraph of his of his article, you know, he has uh, this uh, uh, he has this you know the summary of what analytic philosophy is like, uh, where he here I'll just let me just read this out right. He says. Anyone who comes into contact with the academic philosophy today quickly discovers the field is dominated by a certain style. The style is straight talking, but jargon laden. Arguments are finely crafted. Discussion takes the form of exchange, uh, the exchange of quick fire objections and replies. I don't, I don't think it always does, but like, you know, it's like, okay, I'm not going to be too nitpicky about this. I know what he means. No, analytic philosophy can go on and on and fucking on. Yeah, right, exactly. You know, sometimes <laughs> it should be more quick fire. I wouldn't call it fucking snappy. I mean, for for I mean, look, I 
I always liked the Q and A best, uh, but uh, but that might, that's a matter of personality because like that's where you got to fight with people. But like, like any, any anyone that's like, oh wow, Heidegger's so complicated. You go read some analytic metaphysics, and after yes. slipping around for an hour and a half, they should try and like say a single thing that's been said because you'll get <laughs> unlike Heidegger, you'll get through all the sentences, but at the <laughs> end you'll be like. Well, I, I've, I've, I haven't got anywhere here. I don't know what the thesis is. I don't know what the conclusion is. Ugh. So it says the weighty discussions one might imagine to be central to philosophy quickly dissolve into more trivial puzzles. This is analytic philosophy. And one of the funny things about this is that if that's your complaint about analytic philosophy, um, then what's um, – uh, then shouldn't, um, you know, shouldn't you, uh, like, you should like the Vienna Circle a lot less than what exists now, right? Because because uh, if you're talking about, you know, sort of moving away from, you know, like old style weighty philosophical questions, it's like, look, a lot of the Vienna Circle stuff was actually doing that, right? Say like, because, uh, you know, we, we haven't, defined this term yet, but, you know, logical positivism, which is a phrase that comes up a lot in, in this discussion, uh, is roughly what the Vienna Circle guys thought. Um, and I'll, I go into a lot more depth about what it was and wasn't in the, in the essay, but I've been mean, roughly speaking the thought that describes a lot of positivist philosophy is that, um, when you ask of some statement, uh, what does it mean? And what do you ask of it? How do we go about finding out whether it's true? How do we go about verifying it or falsifying it with evidence? The uh, positivist says those are actually not two distinct questions. Those are the same question. That uh, So if something isn't a contradiction, that's just false by definition. It's not a tautology. This is true by definition. Uh, then in order to find out what it means, we have to see how to go about verifying it. And if there's no way to verify it, then it's just meaningless. And, you know, some of the, uh, you know, some of the logical positivists were more excitable about this stuff than others and like drew more, you know, sort of bolder, more radical conclusions than the others. But like the most extreme version of this thought was like, oh yeah, a lot of the shit that like philosophers have always argued about is just, is just like literally meaningless. Right. It's 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 nonsense. There's no these are pseudo questions that that sort of dissolve once we realize that, you know, that, that none of it's like has sort of operational definitions that we can test and all that. And so, you know, like uh, some of the positivists would say, like, look, if you, uh, you know, I'm not even an atheist because an atheist is somebody who denies there there's exist that there is a God. My position on the existence of God is I don't even know what the fuck you're talking about. You know, you're just kind of making noises right now, and uh, or like um, the you know like AJ Ayer, right? It was an important uh, British uh, sort of uh, apostle of the Vienna Circle. Uh, wrote a book called Language, Truth, and Logic, where he says look, all this justice, morality, whatever, it's like, I, I, don't, I don't know what the evidence is for, you know, that would like either verify or falsify any of this stuff, right? So it's like, I if this isn't entirely meaningless, it certainly doesn't have any, um, any like cognitive content. It's just, uh, it, you know, these are just sort of noises you make to express your feelings, you know? So he like famously says that murder is wrong just means like, boo, murder. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's like, whatever you think about that program, it's like, okay, that sounds like dissolving 
weighty philosophical questions. Um, whereas like a lot of more recent analytic philosophy, it's like, I, I want to know. So on the sort of intellectual narrowness point, that half of what it seems to be that Sharinga is arguing, I want to know what are the weighty philosophical questions that there aren't plenty of analytic, you know, so-called analytic philosophers who've weighed in on extensively over the course of the last several decades. Cause like you have a, a whole extensive literature on like analytic philosophy of religion with, you know, people arguing back and forth about the existence of God, the problem of evil and all that stuff. You have tons of analytic ethics and tons of, you know, Alley political philosophy, uh, and go into, uh, yes, correct. Uh, and go into, um, like the other, besides Bertrand Russell, the other, uh, absence that I find most remarkable is Sharinga. It's like, okay, what about fucking G.A. Cohen, right? Like, cause, cause this is a, this is a major figure in analytic political philosophy in the seventies, eighties, nineties, two thousands, who uh, is is a like his big early project is defending Karl Marx's theory of history, uh, you know, like sort of try to rigorously understand and defend uh, historical materialism. And then his big late project is trying to sort of make normative arguments, you know, for for the desirability of socialism. And um, and this is, uh, you know, whatever you think about him, right? Like, like, you know, whether you think that it's like, Oh, he's like not a real Marxist cause he's not Hegelian enough or whatever, or, or, uh, or whether you love Cohen or, you know, whether you're somewhere in between or whatever, it's like, this just does not fit. Like the fact that a guy like that could be as, you know, as vague as the term is right. When it comes to the sort of the style of doing philosophy, the influences, the, uh, this, the sort of feel, that we're talking about, we use the word analytic, right? This guy is as analytic as they come, right? And very self-consciously so. And again, he's a he's a big figure, and uh, and he's and he's uh, and his whole thing is trying to defend you know various Marxist and, and socialist claims. So, you know, but like once you put that in, then it's like okay, um, it clearly, you know, I mean, all right. So you've got Cardap and Neurath and all these people. And, uh, you know, like in the thirties who, who are, you know, radical socialists, uh, you know, you've got, you know, you've got Cohen, you know, a few decades later, uh, even in, in Schrodinger's article, he's, he sort of acknowledges in this sort of weird way that people do in articles where they'll like take a piece of information that like sort of seems to me that really undermines their thesis, but they'll sort of be like, Hey, I acknowledged it. Right. You know, so you, you, you know, like, um, you, uh, you know, it says like, you know, like Donald Davidson, who's like a big, you know, crucially important, uh, analytic philosopher of language was trying to recruit Angela Davis to, to like come teach at his, his department by the late, by the late sixties, which suggests to me that it's like, look, um, is analytic philosophy even now largely dominated by bourgeois liberalism? Yeah, sure. Because like, so is everything else in academia. Uh, why, why should this be different? But like in terms of there being at least some interesting currents of radicalism uh, going on there, that it seems that, that what this really sounds to me like is, yep, you got that. Um, 
before the McCarthy period. You got it after the McCarthy period. And in between, you've got a period where like anybody who didn't want to lose their job shut up about it, which is like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what you'd expect, right? So I'm I'm on the, the Phil Papers survey, which yeah. for, for people who don't know, uh, the Phil Papers survey is ambitiously, it's meant to be a survey of all the philosophers in the world, all the academic philosophers in the world. But concretely, it's it's basically a survey of analytic philosophers. Um, yeah. In and kind of ninety five percent of the respondents uh, yeah. teach in the anglophone world, uh, the developed anglophone world. Um, do you want? I mean, probably no. I'm not fascinated. Guess. I, I do don't even. Say, I don't even want to guess. I'm, I'm going to be too embarrassed. Tell me. People should guess what the percentage supported in this poll capitalism and which and, and the percentage who supports socialism and i mean I, I, <laughs> because the, the 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 number is 26 percent for capitalism Damn. and 49 percent for socialism okay that's interesting uh yeah this is this is one of those things where it's like i really I I would I would just uh, what is uh, you know, Zizek always say when he's feeling particularly hyperbolic and I would sell my mother into slavery to to find out blah 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 right you know the uh, that's uh, it's like it's like God I want so badly to ask follow up questions you know about right. this because obviously you know this is a survey which is post Bernie Sanders right yeah yeah no yeah. being being yeah. philosophers. Uh, 8% said the question is too unclear to answer. Yeah, see, that sounds like more like analytic philosophers to me. Uh, yeah, I, I think that the, um, like, it does fit, though, right, with something I didn't, I kind of didn't get to in the essay, but but I do, I do think is worth kind of saying as like a supplement to what I said earlier, which is, I think, um, it was really just kind of sociologically interested for me, right. To, to see the, the way a lot of people shifted, um, after, um, you know, after, uh, 2000 and, you know, like, you know, whatever, 2015 or so, right. You know, like, like, uh, after, uh, you know, the rise of Bernie and all of that, because even though, like I said, I'd love to ask some follow-up questions. Like, okay, how many people said socialism, but still, you know, but still were like Elizabeth Warren to be a supporters. Uh, but, uh, uh, but I will say it is really interesting to me when I look back at people I went to graduate school with uh, who, you know, like I said, would just kind of treat like, you know, I'm a socialist as like, you know, there's this like, there's like a sort of like, interested in amusing eccentricity you know that uh that like nobody even got mad at that because it's like huh okay uh that's uh like and people who i would sometimes have arguments about this stuff with who i would have arguments about um you know about capitalism and socialism you know it's like oh well you know how would the new how would like the uh you know would we have iphones right if we were living under socialism those kinds of arguments uh <laughs> And uh, and how would I, I would have arguments with about Obama, right? And and you know why I thought he sucked, and you know they disagreed. Uh, who you know like really 
I'm not saying you, they you, came you, all- you were never impressed with, with a bungler. I was never impressed with a bungler. No, I was a, how, was how really, old were you in 2008? Uh, 28. Oh, okay. So yeah, my age. Yes. So, uh, I was, no, I was not impressed with the bungler. I was, I was like, uh, I was, uh, yeah, I, I always, I, I think like somehow or another, when like he was campaigning for president and he said very clearly and unambiguously that like I I'm gonna like do a bunch of drone strikes in Pakistan. Uh like I somehow managed to hear those sentences from from the speeches and none of my friends seemed to seem to. Uh and like I and like he really did say that. Like he was like like he wasn't like like there are plenty of things that he lied about during the campaign and then like you know did the opposite, but like on stuff like that, it was like, no, he was, he was pretty clear. Right. Like it was like, he, he was like, yeah, I think, uh, I think the war in Iraq is bad because we took our eye off the really important war in Afghanistan. And I want to double down on that one. Right. Like that was his line. <laughs> that, it's, it's really good Democrat brain though. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. So it's like, yeah, I was always, I was always very down on Obama. Uh, and, uh, whereas a lot of my friends were, you know, where uh, they they uh, they drank the hope and change uh, pretty hard, and um, and yeah, I have uh, and and I would have. Uh, I think that so a lot of these people who I'd have these arguments with, some of them have come more or less exactly to my politics since then and some of the ones who have it have like certainly made it a good distance of the way there uh just because you know i don't think i don't think like you know academia changed particularly i just think the world changed um and so like i don't know i mean i think about some of the people who i i, I always thought of as being like super mainstream liberally in their in their politics back then who like some of these people joined DSA, uh, like what if the people I'm thinking about, like most vividly here is like, I don't, you know, I don't think he's going to like go out and join organizations, but he's like a big Chapo fan now. Right. You know, there's uh, <laughs> uh, like, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's, there's been a, there's been a shift, uh, which is great. Right. And like, I, I remember, you know, I was in, in like 20, um, you know, from like 20, uh, 2013 to 2015, I, uh, I was teaching in South Korea and then, uh, I got back and, uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, my wife was still working on her dissertation and I didn't have an academic job lined up. And so I, you know, I was just substitute teaching in Michigan for a semester. And then I got this, adjunct job at Rutgers, you know, was starting in 2016. And I remember like, it was really weird for the first time ever. I was like, you know, it's like, Oh, this is nice. I could get used to this where it's like, they, they would, I would like be in conversations with people that I like knew for the you know, philosophy department about politics. And it's like, it, it, you know, there were like, uh, you know, there were like other people, some multiple other people who just like agreed with me about stuff. It's like, Oh, Hey, cool. Right. That's fun. Right. Cause, uh, I, I think that there was, you know, grads did some time about not professors, but like, uh, but yeah, I think there was a, there was like a, a nice shift now that, 
now that that birdie moment has, uh, you know, has like reversed itself. Um, I, I, I guess I don't, you know, I don't know. I guess I would expect that a lot of that, you know, um, I don't know how that's going to play out. Right. But like, I think that the, um, you know, but I, I, but again, I think that's not because like, you know, academic philosophy was somehow different. I just, I just think that that's because like, um, development. They, the they also asked on, on the survey um, method in political philosophy, which you prefer ideal theory or non-ideal theory. Do you, do you know which one won this time? Non non-ideal theory won by almost two to one. Yeah. Roll roll cells seething. <laughs> roll cells seething. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I still I still want you to do that that uh that that hating on Rawls uh guest essay. I think that'd be a fun I think that'd be a fun one. You know, I, I guess I guess the last thing maybe we haven't mentioned yet that's that's worth saying about all this is that uh, so there's the original Sharinga article and a lot of a lot of my essays is just me responding to Sharinga, but uh, there's also another essay that Jackman published by uh, Nick French, uh, who's like an assistant editor there, and uh, who's who's also a uh, a result of the uh, the small but honorable uh, philosophy grad school to Jacobin pipeline, uh, and uh, and he's um, and uh, and I think what he's very good at, he's very good on in his his you know response to Shringa, you know, which is like very different from mine, but like what I think is like really notable there is that he's really taking on sort of the element of Sharinga's essay that we haven't really talked about, which is all of this business about like uh, the liberal marketplace of ideas and treating people as atomized individuals at, at all of all of that stuff, right. That, uh, that um, Sharinga is, is talking about, which, which seems sort of very uh, poorly, uh, you know, like, like it, it, it seems very like the like the parameters of what he's even talking about there don't seem very well defined to me. Like, like I found that a little frustrated. But I think that given like almost any reasonable interpretation of what he's saying, I think Nick French's response is is very good, right? Which is to say, like, okay, um, just about any interpretation of what this complaint is supposed to amount to is just not a good complaint right because like, what are we really talking about when we say oh you know you guys believe in the liberal marketplace of ideas it's like well do you just believe you know because like he says things like oh they believe in a marketplace of ideas where anybody can come sell their wares it's like okay <laughs> it was so, just he's basically doing like scaremongering about the word market yeah it's like okay so so strip away the fact that you you're using a metaphor to something socialists don't like right it's a market and uh, and, and then it's like, what, what are we actually talking about? Right. Like, like, like I, I really want to, you know, like under interrogation, right. You know, the, the thing that I really want to ask Shringa about this is like, what's the, explain what you mean without using a metaphor. Just, just tell me like literally what you mean, uh, by this, right. Like, like no market metaphor is just like, say what it's a metaphor for and then explain why it's a bad thing. And it, it seems like, 
what's really being said here is just like, yeah, there's a, uh, there's, um, you believe that people present their ideas and then you try to figure out which one of them, you know, which of these ideas are true by looking at arguments without, and not like doing something other than that, which, to which I would say, yes, good. That is indeed what you should do. And like, I, I think the idea that this is somehow in tension with Marxism is kind of ludicrous. I mean, like if you have, um, oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Shani. I really appreciate that. Um, but uh, I think that like the idea that this is somehow in tension with Marxism, I think is ridiculous on many, for, for many reasons. One of which is like, I've been um, actually I had to cancel it this morning. Cause I had, I, you know, for reasons we don't need to get into, I got I was eating hours. breakfast for three hours. I was not eating breakfast for three hours. I was eating breakfast Sadly. for uh, 40. I, yeah, that would have been nice. I was eating breakfast for 45 minutes watching the clock uh, before this, but I got like two hours of sleep originally. And, uh, and I was, I was, uh, I, I was, I was a mess when I, uh, I got up, but the, uh, in any case, uh, but I've been teaching this class, which, you know, we really are almost done with. There's like, uh, seven or eight chapters left, seven chapters left, maybe eight chapters left on uh, Capital. And you, know, you read that book and it's like, you know who seems to be really into the idea that you should try to figure out what's true by making arguments and and, uh, and evaluating the arguments made by others is Karl Marx, right? He does a lot of it. Like he, uh, he's like that book, he's not just like, like the gap between what both certain kinds of enemies of Marxism and even some people who consider themselves to be friends of Marxism, the gap between what they think that Marx is doing, what Marx is actually doing is just astonishing to me. Cause it's like, if Marx was doing what they thought he was doing, he would just be like, well, look, I don't need to respond to like Adam Smith or David Ricardo's arguments. Like it's like, you know, when, what, what, what is this liberal nonsense where you look at arguments and try to figure out like if they're, you know, and try to show that they don't really fit with the evidence or that there are, you know, leaps or contradictions, or whatever. It's like, I don't do that. Right. You know, like all I, all I need to do is to point out that these people were apologists for, you know, for enemy class interests and just leave it at that call it a day. Right. It's like, well, if that's what it was, I mean, capital a critique of political economy could have been a page long. Uh, the, like that, that there's so much of that book is uh is him you know discussing specific arguments made by bourgeois economists and saying you know and saying no but that doesn't make sense because of x y and z and what about this and you know and, and in fact they're trying to have it both ways here and you know and like all of that stuff right like he's constantly evaluating arguments based on by others he's constantly making arguments of his own oftentimes chapter to chapter to chapter he'll he'll reframe the same argument like in slightly different terms, like try to hammer it home in a different way. And it's like, yeah, that sounds to me like somebody who, if we're going to call the belief that you should like, you know, inspect arguments to see if they make sense and to try to tell which ideas are true objectively, rather than just looking at like the identity characteristics of the people making it or whatever. Like if we're going to call that, like everybody bringing their wares to a marketplace of ideas, then like, Cool. This one market that Karl Marx loves. Yeah. Um, did you see me arguing about SoCal in the comments? <laughs> about SoCal? Yeah, oh, yeah. oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I see. This is where my mind is at because 
for a second, I thought you meant SoCal, like Southern California. And I was like, how did that come up? <laughs> no, but, no, uh, the, no, SoCal, Alan, Alan SoCal. Uh, yeah, I yeah, did yeah. see a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, I, uh, <laughs> that, that is a, yeah, that's, that's, that's a discussion. Uh, that's a discussion to be had in and of itself. Um, so I, I, I take it you're, you're very, uh, uh, you're very, uh, you're very anti-hoax about this. Yeah, I'm very I'm a big, big hater of him. Uh, but kind of the whole, the whole, the whole premise of it was, it was basically, you know, how he portrays it. It was like he sent in some absolute fucking shite to this journal, and they were like, "Hell yeah, let's publish it." And then he basically <laughs> goes from this to say that people send in shite to journals; they aren't real academic subjects. You can just post anything if you do it in like fun language. But that isn't at all what happened. He he sent it in, and they were like. Well, we understand the, the philosophy bits. Uh, they don't really make any sense. Um, we, we don't really understand the quantum physics bits, but you're, you're meant to be the physicist, so we guess you're right about that. Could you remove the philosophy bits and, and focus on the physics stuff? And he was like, no. And this was, <laughs> they weren't a blind journal, which was the main problem. Uh, um, and they were like, okay, you're a big famous physicist, so we're not going to question it. We're just going to publish this thing which we think is quite questionable but whatever we're like we're a small journal no one's going to fucking read it anyway and then he basically journal and be like you frauds you disgusting fraud. and really the 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 the, the guy <laughs> that was sinning academically is him that's funny uh yeah i didn't you know, it's like obviously I, I vaguely knew what the hoax was. Like I, I sort of knew mostly. I think the the punchline or what the punchline is supposed to be. But this is this is this is definitely, yeah, this is new information for me. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I think you know that that too would actually be fun to. Uh, uh, obviously, he did he did reveal a failing in these journals, but it wasn't that they published nonsense, but that they didn't have like. You know, they were too willing to give in to kind of popularity. But his accusation was that they generally publish nonsense. But the, the actual problem is they're willing to publish nonsense from famous guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's funny. Yeah, right. It would be, yeah, if, if he just like, right, if he'd done like a blind review, he'd submitted a blind reviewed paper and, and it was... Uh, yeah, which is actually, I think, kind of what I always vaguely assumed happened. So that's interesting. Yeah, like it was it was rejected with major corrections, and he was like, "No," and they gave in basically. Oh my god, those poor people. That's funny. I have a yeah. So if this is yeah, that's right. That's uh, okay. Yeah, I've I've never I've never heard I've never heard the story told in that way. But yeah, if that's uh, yeah, I mean, that's obviously, probably my stories also to a large degree wrong but that you know i think the important bit is that they really brought up a lot of problems with the article which completely dismantles the thesis that it's all just nonsense right yeah yeah no okay so i'm gonna uh all right now i'm curious i i'm, I'm actually gonna i'm actually gonna look into this um but um but yeah that would be uh uh that would be a fun one uh to uh that would also actually be a fun one to, to do to uh you know probably 
not anytime soon because it would take a lot of research on my end. Uh, but like that'll be a fun one to do for the Substack at some point. <laughs> is like a, I'm just, I'm just chat telling me I'm just directly wrong. So we'll yeah, see. Okay. <laughs> All right. So. So I, I started out with one impression. You're telling me that like I'm completely wrong. Chat says you're completely wrong. I think that the I think that we're gonna have to uh, <laughs> you're gonna have to do I, some I, science, mate. I think we're gonna have to do some science and dig into this. And uh, yeah, I know he also wrote a book about this, uh, not just that experience, but I think his sort of broader critique of of like postmodern philosophy and stuff. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I am going to, I'm going to look into, uh, I'm going to look into this and, uh, and, and see if, uh, I'm What's, not, it would be, be so good if I could say as like a cliffhanger for next week that we're going to find out whether Stefan or the chat is right, but, uh, I'm not going to be able to find out by next week. Uh, but what, you know. what, 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 what will next week be? <laughs> yes. Uh, next week is going to be a change of pace. Uh, so, uh, I was, um, uh, I think that, um, it's, it's going to, um, so obviously this, this week, um, you know, this week and last week, we're both sort of very kind of, uh, we're both very like sort of, um, analytic philosophy content, you know, heavy, right. You know, there's like all this stuff this week about, you know, logical positivism and, uh, uh, philosophy of science and you know Rawls and all that last week you know all about you know uh, the academic you know debate among analytic philosophers about free will and you know moral responsibility and all that I was, I was thinking uh, I was thinking next week I could uh, uh, could talk about why uh, you know why Plato thinks that it's irrational to uh, to be afraid of death and uh, and why he sort of has a point, but it's uh, it's kind of interestingly impossible to actually internalize that point. Right. So, uh, so yep. Yeah, uh, I was I was going to say, when are we going to do some shit on the fucking trolley problem or whatever? Yeah, actually, I, I was thinking about it. I mean, I think I think on that list. Uh, so so when we first started, when I first pitched the idea of of doing the um, uh, of. It's like, hey, do you want to do you want to uh, like interview me on TIR about about these as, as I put them out? And like, I was kind of explaining my idea for the Substack to you. I think I sent you a Word document with like a zillion like that things that I kind of come up with just to kind of reassure myself that it's like like I, I kind of had enough to sustain this in the long term. And uh, it's like stuff things that I wanted to write about. And uh, one of them was about the trolley problem, uh, and uh, and so that that one is definitely coming because I think that there's a really interesting um, there's like a really interesting paper where Judith Jarvis Thompson uh, says um, that uh, you know like sort of proposes what I actually think is like a really plausible solution, uh, sort of in the middle of the paper, and then she's like, yeah, but probably not that, and it's like I I don't know, go back to that. That's that's the same thing with June jo her, her abortion article, where kind of in the middle she gives a very convincing argument, but then actually she moves on and basically she argues that we have no positive right to aid at all, which uh, is right to demand yes. aid, which is like what the fuck. Yeah, no, that's yes. I think that she's a uh, yeah. There's a point where she's very. Um, I mean, she says different things at different points in the article, um, and 
like she's there's a point where she says this very plausible thing which is like um she talks about good samaritans versus minimally decent samaritans and it's like okay um maybe you don't have an obligation to be a good samaritan in the sense of like sort of going all out uh to 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 help somebody and you know putting yourself at risk and you know all the stuff but like come on you at least have an obligation to be a minimally decent samaritan i like in the she gives the example of uh i'm blanking on the name of the case but there's this there's this famous case in new york in the 70s where uh this woman was supposedly um uh when she got murdered outside the apartment yeah, and no exactly. one called the police. Allegedly, I think it's definitely not allegedly. True, I, th- I think I think that philosophy paper so it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like journalists who've actually gone back and looked at the reporting on this have like pretty definitively said this is not how it happened. But like this, yeah, right, dozens of people called the police, but it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. but the urban legend, uh, which was what was kind of reported at the time, uh, and like there's like a Harlan Ellison short story that's like based on like this this sort of urban legend version of it is that like all these people saw from their, their apartment balconies and nobody called the police. And, um, and so anyway, whatever, it doesn't really matter for our, for her purposes, whether it happened or not. Right. Her point is just like, okay, it, um, you know, like none of them would have even been breaking the law. Right. You know, by, by not, you know, reporting this, you know, they're under no legal obligation to, to do so. And isn't that interested that they don't even have to do that to preserve somebody's life. Whereas, you know, on the assumption that this is, you know, a fetus has moral status, you know, you're asking a pregnant woman to like share her body for nine months. Right. As opposed to just like picking up the goddamn phone. Right. You know, to, uh, uh, you know, like which, and, uh, but like, I think where she's most plausible, she's like, yeah, maybe there should be minimally decent Samaritan laws. Like, it's like, it's like, that doesn't actually seem crazy that like you, you should be. Right. In, in the abortion article, she says that if this famous, this fame, she's first, you know, gives an example that this famous actor shouldn't be forced to fly across America to save her life. But then she yeah. says this, this famous actor shouldn't be forced to walk across the room to save her life. And it's like, and no, it's like, no, he should like, he should <laughs> like, you just, you were going so good and then you had to take it too far. Like that's uh it's like, yeah. Cause she said, was it his like call made like his hand under brow, you know, would be enough to, to save her. It's like, well, if that's all it fucking took then like grab his hand and like put it on our brow. Like that's a, I'm not going to like cry too much about like his lost rights. You know, if that's all that happens. Um, and so, yeah, I think she's kind of, I think there are moments in that article where she sort of, she's, uh, where where she's she has like more reasonable instincts on this stuff and there are moments where she just like gets like crazily libertarian out of nowhere and it's like no judith you don't have to do that like you're making your point just fine without that uh, but um but yes yeah, so i think similarly on the trolley problem stuff there is a uh there, there is uh there is a really interesting point she wrote a bunch of papers about this but like in one of them there's a really interesting point where she sort of suggests this like uh this like kantian kind of solution to it that like i think is really interesting and at least somewhat plausible and like she's kind of in the next page she's like yeah but probably not and it's like well no let's 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 linger on that like a minute right like like maybe maybe you actually have something here so that is what i want to do also what i want to do at some point is just like a more general sort of like um in defense of thought experiments essay just just like this is actually 
like, yeah, like, no, like you know, because like there are all these people who like think, you know, maybe I should say all these people, but whatever. There are people who think like, uh, oh, it's ridiculous that you're concluding anything whatsoever on the basis of, you know, contrived science fiction examples, blah, blah, blah. This is not how you should, you know, raise about this stuff. And I, I'm not going to say there's no real instances where that's a fair reaction, but I think, I think a lot of that stuff largely misses the point. Uh, and, uh, and, and I would, I would definitely, I would definitely like to, uh, I would definitely like to, uh, to do that. And, and I mean, like to- toy examples or something which exists in like every academic discipline. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if you're not allowed to do like toy examples, then like physics education is in the bin. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Like, I think that it's, and you know, I think that, like, I think there's a, I think that most, I think a lot of people who have this reaction are just kind of um, misconstruing the way that these examples are typically used, because uh, it's not like none of this stuff is like, it's not like oh. Um, being pregnant is exactly like being kidnapped it hooked up to uh, to a sick violinist. And so whatever's true of one could be true of the other. I mean, if you read that article, for example, like that's um, the point that Thompson is making is uh, if you're going to make an anti-abortion argument where, you know, you make this move that seems very reasonable when you first say it, which is like, okay, sure, bodily autonomy is nice, but like the right to life is like more important than anything. You know, so like if those two rights come into conflict, you know, right to life wins, I think, you know, I think it's totally reasonable to say, well, okay, if that's like, it's supposed to be a general principle that you're, that you're endorsing, then let's test it. Right. I mean, like, like, would you actually endorse that, you know, uh, across the board, you know, what about, you know, what about this case? And, you know, it's, it's not, it's not really, um, you know, a, like, or it certainly doesn't have to be to do the work it has to do with that article direct analogy at at all right like and i think that that's um you know and and i think it's like a real um yeah i mean i I think people often just like miss the point like and i will also say to connect up the dots with um with the essay that uh that we did uh last week um like i also think that part of the reason that people end up with this sort of you know, aversion to the very idea of a thought experiment is silly nonsense is that you also have people who, you know, you also have your like Sam Harris's of the world who, uh, who will just like, who will just say some like absolutely absurd bullshit and then be like, Oh, that was just a thought experiment. And, uh, I don't, do do you know what that means? Cause, cause I don't like the way that you're saying it doesn't really sound like it's kind of, it's like a Morton Bailey thing, right? If, yeah. if it's just a thought experiment and doesn't apply to reality, then no, actually, we shouldn't torture this guy in his equipment. Yeah, right. Like it's and it's and I think he often kind of wants to have it both ways on that. And there's like a, um, you know, so it's like I, I could totally see that if you've just like read a bunch of Sam Harris uh, or like my, you know, his. Uh, I remember he's got. Um, so like the really notorious one is in the, at the end of the end of faith, uh, he, he says, basically, he doesn't say Iran, but he says like, a, you know, what if like a fundamentalist regime in the Middle East, you know, gets nukes 
and um, <laughs> uh, and uh, then then like you know it'd be totally justifiable to to do like a first strike to like actually initiate a conflict to, you know preemptively because you can't trust them to uh, to use it responsibly. And then people get really mad at it about it. And he's like, oh, well, you know, I'm just, just doing thought experiments here, you know. And it's like, no, you're actually advocating that, like, in a situation that might actually come up, right? You know, like you're you're saying what you think we should actually do in real I mean, life. There is there is already a country which is read, you know, led by far right fundamentalist religious people who do have nuclear weapons. Um, but I don't think Sam Harris wants to nuke Jerusalem. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, but let's let's uh, fucking knock off because we're just talking shit about irrelevant topics, yeah, yeah, which is fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, we should definitely knock off. Sounds good. Bye, everyone. <laughs>